it says here that I have to welcome you and to introduce myself. So for those of you with short-term memories, <laughs> I'm Tony O'Donnell and I'm the Executive Dean of the Faculty of Science at the University of Western Australia. Uh, it's a great pleasure uh, to host tonight's event and we've got lined up for you a discussion about one of the sort of critical problems, compelling problems that's actually facing our planet over the next 10 to 15 years. The university earlier this year introduced its vision for 2030 and part of that vision actually involves engaging our staff and engaging with countries around the Indian Ocean Rim in actually meeting and tackling the grand challenges that are facing humanity to 2050. Can I ask you to uh, think about the ocean and then just shout out for me, give me an, an, a descriptor that describes what you're thinking about. So it might be the ocean's wet. What else is the ocean? Surf. 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 Reefs. Reefs. Anything else? Just that surfing in reefs. <laughs> Sharks, good, Liz, dolphins. Blue. Okay, well, when, when I think about the ocean, I think about fish. So the fish, fish would have been something I would have shouted out very early. And when I came up on the plane yesterday, I listened to a podcast where someone actually explained, and I was shocked by this and very pertinent to this evening's discussion, I was shocked to learn that by 2025, the amount of plastic in the ocean is expected to double. By 2050, by weight, there will be more plastic in the ocean than there are fish. So I think this evening's discussion is a very pertinent one. I think it's something that involves all of us. And I look forward very much to either having those numbers challenged <laughs> or to actually discussing them further. So I'd like to introduce uh, the moderator for this evening's discussion, Brenda Tournier. And Brenda is Director, Alumni and Community Relations at U UWA. And Brenda's going to run everything from now on. <laughs> or, or try. <laughs> Uh, welcome, everyone. I'm so, so, so glad that you're here. And I, as Tony said, it's, it's, it's such an important discussion that we're going to have tonight. And we are joined by four people who have very interesting and different perspectives on the problem, but also on what we can do about it. So this is, this is not just all doom and gloom. I've, that stat about the 2050, I've heard that exact same stat, and I think it is true if we don't do something. And so tonight is partly about what can we do. And now instead of me introducing each one of the panelists, what I've asked them to do, we're going to work our way across, and I've asked them to introduce themselves, tell you what they do, and why this is an issue that's important to them. So, Anas, we'll start with you. Well, my name is Anas Gedwani. I am professor of environmental engineering. So I work on water. So usually uh, people refer to me as a water nerd. So uh, that's, that's my uh, self-description. Uh, uh, and uh, I work on water mostly from the fresh side of the thing, so the w urban water cycle, wastewater, urban water, and um, a little bit of coastal environment. And I have become interested in 
microplastics and their you know pathway in in the water systems uh, for now uh, many years, and um, that's why I'm here to talk to you about. And my name is Kate Philp. I'm an environmental engineer, and I actually studied with Anas. He was my professor back in the early 2000s. So I can confirm he is a water nerd, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm actually living in Singapore at the moment. I'm working as a consultant with the World Bank here on their regional marine plastic strategy. So this was super relevant. Um, and I'm also working as an environmental engineer for a consulting company in Perth called Rescology, doing mining environmental type work. Um, I'm passionate about this issue because I see it as a really tangible issue, right? I mean, anyone who's seen plastic on beaches knows that it's an issue. You see it and you go, okay, there's something wrong here. This isn't, we, we need to fix this. And it's also, it's, it's an issue that is really fixable. You know, we, maybe we can't eliminate plastic entirely right now, but we can make a lot of progress with the technology and with the solutions that we already have. So I'm really excited about it because I think it's something that we can actually really do well if we um, work together on it. Hi, I'm Mark Hurlstone. Um, I'm a lecturer in the School of Psychology at UWA. Um, uh, my research um, essentially operates at the intersection of um, psychology and economics in a field called behavioral economics. Um, I, I guess my, my research is primarily focused on behavior change with respect to various environmental problems, the biggest amongst those being climate change. That's what I'm particularly interested in. Um, mostly at the individual level, so what we can do as good citizens to, to help protect the climate, but I'm especially interested in the international negotiations on climate change uh, and the kind of factors that have, can potentially promote and inhibit cooperation between countries, and that's certainly what I've been doing most of my work on more recently. Um, but I have a, an interest in the application of insights from psychology and economics and behavioral economics to behavior change problems more generally, and particularly environmental problems, things like energy conservation, water conservation, and uh, the topic for which we're, we're here tonight. And so that's, that's why I'm here. Uh, and I share the optimistic stance that our uh, other two panelists have um, proclaimed so far. I think this is a problem that um, you know, we, we, we really can solve. I'm somewhat less optimistic about the climate change problem, but I'm, I'm optimistic about this one. Hi, my name is Honey. I, am, I work in the early childhood education. At the moment, I advocate for inclusion, and I believe that everything starts when they're very young, and I believe that values um, like uh, sustainable uh, living, we can get children to think about it, we can get them to start young in the family. Most of my work with AWA, I do advocacy work for inclusion, um, and that's having children with disability uh, living side by side, learning side by side with children who are typically developing and we do a lot of value-based work and this is value-based for me and this, we can start them very young. Awesome, thank you. So I think we'll start with just getting a sense of the scope of the problem. Um, and Anas, I'd like for you to, to maybe start the conversation. And if you could talk, not just, because we all think of plastic as those big bottles that we see and things like that, but you do a lot of work with micro 
plastics. And so can you, can you describe what the problem is and, and the gravity of it? Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, uh, it's one of those problems that uh, when you start looking, you find that it was actually uh, way more uh, than you expected. So this is a problem that uh, surpassed anyone's expectation, but in the wrong way. A uh, bit like sometimes I try to, the analogy is that you're, you know, after you come home and your kids are at home and they get the house upside down and you open the door and you find that it's actually worse and you just do nothing. <laughs> you can't even start because it's just all over the place. So this is a case where when people started looking, they thought that they're going to find microplastics and plastics everywhere. And I like your title that you selected for because it's actually true. But they only they found that it's not only it's everywhere, but it's in in a magnitude that nobody expected. Now, if you step back and you apply some basic uh, fundamental uh, 101 or uh, uh, first year, um, you know, uh, pollutant something that you're probably contaminated fate and transport, you would say, you would find that this problem actually fit perfectly uh, what a permanent pollutant is, persistent pollutant, so it's no surprise to the scientists because the expectation is really mathematically everything that you find in a persistent pollutant. So you can track it, it essentially goes everywhere. Now what, what surprised me recently is that when people are starting to talk about the fact that we probably ingest about five grams of plastics every day, there are lots of people who freaked out because they thought, oh, but we're saying, we've told you this because microplastics are in the environment. Lots of people think of themselves as not part of the environment. <laughs> and you go like, you know, this is not a surprise. Now, uh, you know, as Kate said, it's, it's a, a problem of larger magnitude. And I think the United, I forgot the word, but the United Nations have a, a term for, you know, problems that surpass our expectations. Uh, that's why there's a big movement uh, to try to fix and lots of, um, you know, I suppose consensus that we need some action. And again, a good news about this, this problem is that there are solutions and we know that lots of these uh, plastics come from a source and lots of those sources can be controlled. So it is a problem that we can solve. However, it is huge. So we need some help. So going back to the analogy of doing housework is that you find that you need maybe five people to you know, organize a room. So this is how it is. We need to put all the efforts together to try to tackle this problem because it is at multiple level. It is in the water, it is in the food, it is in the environment, it's everywhere. It's in the air, it's on the snow, it's in the ice, it's everywhere. So I was going to say, because you said the, what was it, five grams a day, and a lot of that is just being breathed in, isn't it? Yeah, it's, that's right. So lots of it can be breathed in, uh, lots, of, uh, lots of things that are in your house that, you know, are circulated and, you know, like fiber, microfiber, lots of these things are microfiber, uh, you know, glitter, if you like to put glitter, and I don't know, some people do that. I have, a, I have a, an eight-year-old, oh, she's nine now, uh, <laughs> she would have 
protested if I said eight. Uh, she had a party two years, uh, like a birthday party two years ago. It took me two years to clean the glitter from the house. I still find it in the corners, you know, when I do the vacuuming. So it is really persistent in my house. So imagine it goes into the shower. We actually, it goes through the water system. We, I have students who go out to the wastewater treatment plant, get the water and find glitter inside there. They find everything uh, plastic. And we have sophisticated way where we can basically blast those particles with very, very hot, laser and we vaporize them and we can basically tell exactly what they are. So your washing machine sheds about 40,000 uh, microfiber every load. And um, you know, there's obviously, um, you know, again, we're not gonna talk about solutions yet, but maybe a little bit later. So we know, we know this source. That's, we can identify where these things are coming from. So again, if we go to uh, contaminant fate and transport, uh, you know that a source uh, pollution can be controlled. You know, it can be hard, but it can be controlled. When it becomes, um, you know, more prevalent, that's when there is a problem. So, and, and Kate, maybe we'll just, we'll move on to you. One of the things I think we, we've talked about it before is the fact that one of the issues with plastic is plastic is a um, non-disposable item that's being treated like a disposable item. And so a lot of it is um, linked to how we use plastic and how businesses supply plastic and, and how consumers um, behave with regard to plastics. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, you know, plastic is known as the miracle product and it yeah. was designed to um, keep things from degrading, right? That's the intention of plastic. You, you can put your food in it and it will last longer. You can transport food around the world. And so it has been designed deliberately as this product that doesn't degrade, oh, that yeah. lasts for a really, really, really long time. And as you say, now we're using that product for single uses. We're using it to carry our groceries, you know, from A to B, sometimes maybe 50 metres, often in Singapore, from the nearest fair price to your apartment. Um, and so it's, it is a miracle product, but as you say, we're applying that use now incorrectly. Um, you know, and I, especially, I mean, in Singapore, I think the stat is people use about 13 plastic bags per day here. So when you do the math... Per person. Per person, sorry. Oh. <laughs> per person, yeah. not per island, per person. <laughs> um, and, and when you do the maths, that adds up to 26 billion plastic bags per year. And I mean, now just sit and try to picture it. You can't even picture it over this just tiny little island. Yeah. Um, wow. You know, and a big part of that is we're really lucky here. We have an amazing foodie culture. We have just incredible food, and a lot of it is hawker food and it's super convenient and you can go and they'll make it in two minutes and then you can take it away and you can take it home for dinner. Um, but unfortunately what that comes along with is, is a lot of plastic. Mm. Um, so yeah, and uh, the other thing that we see is, is businesses, you know, they make decisions obviously based on cost and convenience and, and we're seeing businesses not necessarily making the best decisions taking into account the cost to the environment. So for example, Starbucks, you know, you walk past any Starbucks in Singapore and it's full of people sitting there, enjoying their coffees, enjoying the morning, having them in the cafe, but all in disposable cups. 
Um, and it, again, it's we're using this product for the wrong the wrong uses. You know, that's you should be using reusable cups in that circumstance if you're not even taking it away. So yeah, I could go on. So so and you and we'll we are going to come back to that. So Mark, we'll move on to you and we'll talk a little bit about because some of this is about changing people's behavior, even when it's inconvenient to change behavior, um, or when it's um, embarrassing because you have to sort of stand up and say, no, I don't want that, or, you know. So what's, how do we, how does behavior change? What, what motivates people to change their behavior? Um, well, there, there can be various reasons, um, various, various motivators, and it, it will differ depending on the, uh, on the person. Um, so um, some people are highly intrinsically motivated, um, and um, they will want to um, change their plastic-related behavior for environmental reasons. Um, uh, so um, they want to have a, a, a better environmental footprint. Those people are incredibly motivated, intrinsically motivated. Um, they'll seek out information. Um, they're doing the things that um, they need to be doing, but they're a relatively small, um, you know, um, uh, they're, they're a minority of individuals. Um, awareness is generally high on this issue. Um, it could be better, but awareness is generally good, and that's not really the problem. Um, the problem, I think, is that... Has it been always good, or it, it became more better? More recently, I would say, because you know, there, there have been these outreach and educational campaigns. Um, but awareness alone isn't going to motivate people to change their behaviour, unless you're you know, one of these intrinsically environmentally motivated people. Um, one of the problems is that we're being asked to change our behaviour in relation to lots of things. And people have a finite pool of worry. Um, you know, we, we can't worry about everything. We, you know, we, we struggle to um, to change all of our behaviours in relation to all of the, the problems that we have to deal with. So, the, you know, you can't turn someone who isn't pro-environmental and you know intrinsically motivated into someone that is. So you have to use other levers to try and motivate them. And the one that I always go to because it's the most robust that you can use, is, is the use of what we might call socially situated nudges or social norms. So um, communicating like information. Sorry, like peer pressure. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So, um, uh, you know, two, two types of descriptive, two types of social norms. The descriptive norm communicates information about what people think other people are doing. And, and that's a form of social proof. So if other people are doing it, then, well, I should be doing it too. So if other people are recycling, reusing their plastics, reducing their plastic consumption, then I should be doing it too. That signal tells me that I need to get involved. Yeah. The other thing is injunctive norms, which are an even more powerful lever. Injunctive norms convey information about what society approves and disapproves. Mm. They have a much more general application. So if I want to get someone to reduce their plastic bottle use, I could say, well, do you know that 65% of people you know, making active efforts to stop using bottled water. That's a lie, by the way, but, <laughs> but, but, that's, but, that's a, but that's a powerful message because it says most people are doing this, mm. so you should be doing it too. But it's in the specific context of bottled water use. Whereas if I tell you that 90% um, of Singapore residents think that we should all be doing much, much more 
uh, to reduce our use of plastics, that you know transcends specific behaviours. It mm -hmm. sends a, a much more general mm -hmm. signal. I think part of the problem is, um, and we see this across lots of different contexts, is that these norms, they guide our behaviour all the time. We don't realise it. Mm -hmm. um, like when you go into a restaurant and you, and you give a tip, you might not know it, but the amount of money in the tipping jar will influence how much mm -hmm. you, you, you contribute. Mm -hmm. And we see this undetected nature of social norms all the time. But one problem is that people misperceive these norms. Mm. Um, and so I think um, if you were to ask people, um, if you were to ask every Singapore resident, um, do you think you know, this is an issue that's important and that's something that we need to tackle, the majority of them would say, more than 90% would say, yes, I absolutely do. There's a strong injunctive norm. But if you ask them to estimate how many other people share that belief, it will be a lot less. Mm. And when you have that misperception, it's difficult for an individual to motivate themselves to engage in a behaviour when they think that other people aren't going to be engaging mm -hmm. in it as well. So these injunctive norms in particular are kind of really important for building trust in the community that your efforts aren't wasted and that other people are going to engage in this behaviour as well. Um, the descriptive norm is really powerful as well, but the problem is you have to build that up. Um, and that isn't there at the moment for any behaviour in relation to uh, recycling, reducing your use of plastics, reusing plastics. They're minority norms, and minority norms aren't helpful because um, people gravitate towards what is the majority behaviour. Right. Um, but just one more final note on, on these norms. There's a recently discovered type of norm called a trending norm, and it's a descriptive norm either a minority or a majority norm that, increase, that is increasing over time. And it turns out that communicating that norm can be just as powerful as communicating a, a, a majority descriptive norm. So even if only a small percentage of people are taking part, so if I was to say, well, you know, 35% of people um, are you know, actively trying to stop using um, bottled water, and this is increasing 4% every year, then that signals that you know, this is a behavioural trend which is continuing, which is going to continue to grow. Therefore, you need to conform. You need to join this. Um, like a process. social movement, almost. That's right. Yeah. 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 So the reason that I think these are so important is that these norms are underdetected. Mm. They're misperceived often. But when they're deployed, when you correct these misperceptions and when you make them salient, they're very powerful because <laughs> ultimately, we are guided by, we look to others for clues to how to behave, mm. particularly when there's uncertainty or ambiguity, and, and we like to fit in. We like to mm -hmm. be approved of, and we don't like people to frown on us. We don't like to be the one person at the supermarket getting the plastic bags when everyone else is, we've got their reusable bags and they're looking at us with scorn. So, yeah. Right. Or the one person wow. saying, no, I don't want a plastic bag. That's right. Well, that's the other thing. It can work both ways, can't it? Or the one person who brings their plastic container into the restaurant and says, no, I want you to fill this up, and they think that everyone's going to stare at them and that's think that they're that's goofy. Yeah. I was going to say... <laughs> that's you, I know. I was going to say... <laughs> wow, after listening to you, I think people are more complicated than even I thought <laughs> before. It's, it's very complicated. And I don't mean complex, I think complicated. I think, actually, it's probably a bit simpler. We, we, yeah. we, are, we, we just really do care a lot about what our peers think about. Yeah. Right, yeah. okay. Yeah. In, in some respects, yeah. it's, it's kind of... 
um, you know, you just got to reduce it down. I mean, yeah. you don't have to be pro-environmental no. No, to, no. To, en to engage in, in these kinds of behaviors. You just need that social pressure yeah. because we... And that's really encouraging in a way, yeah. because that does then suggest that people can lead yeah. and Absolutely. that others will follow that's right. that's and right. that you can create the perception of a movement, yeah. even if there actually isn't that's right. one. But, but can I just ask a yeah. quick question? So if Kate's just uh, had this number of 29... 26 billion per year. Just for the sake of argument, if suddenly we discover that turning that plastic into something that will become a 26 billion industry, would we get more attention from people? And which norm is that? So what, what is well, the quantity cost. in this case? Sorry, yeah. the, the 26 billion. Yeah. Sorry, what's the quantity? It's not quantity? a problem anymore. It's an oh. opportunity to make, make money from 26 billion Dollars. Um, I think you have to make it personally relevant, right? Um, for it to be effective, yeah. Um, I think that's the key. That's how social norms tend to work. Can cost factor into that though? If you figure it's costing you money, yeah. To um, yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, fin financial um, concerns um, do do factor into it. So um, I mean, you can. Um, I mean. Economic um, penalties and regulation are, you know, yep. a kind of classical way of trying yeah. to, you know, deal with this problem. Disincentives. So, putting, yeah. Putting bit a, like, a I don't on. know whether it was invented yet, but the T were tax. Mm -hmm. If suddenly yeah. you go like, we, everyone is taxed $5 for plastic, what would that do? Like by consumption or something? It would cause, it would cause that moral good? outrage. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's right. the issue. People so, honey. On the streets. <laughs> What about the kids? What about yes. changing things through children? Um, I, I think that, um, and when I was listening to Mark, um, and that's precisely what we do. Um, if we are trying to influence them to do something, we use social stories, we, use, uh, we, we contextualize it for them. And mo a lot of time, those behavior that um, they practice in the school, um, they will go home to practice them. And that's when, um, yes, definitely, um, getting children to see and feel empowered that they can contribute in this movement would be fantastic. Mm -hmm. And it would influence um, what happened at home because um, we, we listen to our three years old, four years old, and five years old a lot. Yeah. Um, and um, there was this story um, uh, two years ago, three years ago, about recycling. And, and this family with a child, the child was in a preschool, and they talked about recycling newspaper. And then he started, this four-year-old boy started a project in his condominium, collecting newspapers to recycle, and that and That's mom had so to follow. Awesome. <laughs> Yeah, that because kids can shame us, can't they? Yes. <laughs> our, our, our kids can make us feel a, a greater sense of responsibility, I think, and especially when they say things like, you know, this is going to be our world. Yes. So how do you balance that, though, as far as getting kids excited about that idea in a positive way versus scaring them about sort of how depressing things are? <laughs> 
No, we won't start with 26 million. Yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> but we, we could contextualize it for them. We could talk about um, uh, with plastics. It's, it's as simple as um, showing them pictures of uh, what happened in the ocean when we yeah. pollute. And and asking them uh, what what do they think about that, yep. and if if they they pollute or they, they throw rubbish at home, they can relate to that, mm -hmm. and they can um, they can understand that, and they yep. can put it as part of their behavioral norms. Mm -hmm. And once that becomes a behavioral norm for them, uh, it translates at home. Uh, it's shared at home, um, and mom and dad normally would work with us. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that become part of their everyday life, and we won't worry about going to to the hawker center mm -hmm. and bring back plastic because wow. they they would they then won't bring let their you. own glass containers. <laughs> yeah. 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 So so I think I mean, how do we get that into the school schools then? How do we start teaching kids about responsible behavior? with regard to plastic, so they do take it home. Because kids are brave, aren't they? Yeah. They'll do it if they think <laughs> it's a good thing to do. Um, I think, um, so there is this move also from the, um, the early childhood um, licensing uh, agency in Singapore. When they go around to license centers, one of the things that they look at is uh, whether do you practice sustainable um, um, living or um, activities, or do you practice recycling in in your center? Yep. So those are, I, I would think, good um, moves that um, the centers can start with, um, whether it's recycling plastics or art material, um, washing the plastic. Um, plates um, mm -hmm. and reusing them for art materials. So simple things like this um, yep. and stories telling social stories on uh, reusing plastic um, and um, understanding that we can repurpose it um, and yes, many, many exciting acti mm -hmm. activities just thinking about repurposing them. And yep. even maybe how they bring their lunches and Things like that, I yeah. suppose. Okay. In yeah. Singapore, the lunches are provided and the yeah. snacks oh, okay. and so are they all don't, provided they don't in yeah. school. Yeah. The only thing that we see families um, using lots of plastic is uh, putting uh, clothing yeah. in a plastic bag, a new yeah. plastic bag, yeah. and bring it to school. And then we change their clothes and we put the, the dirty mm. clothes in the new plastic bag yeah. and it yeah. will be a one-time use. Yeah. So simple things like having uh, uh, a recyclable bag yep. rather than plastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Mm. So, so now we're kind of moving into what can people do. Mm. And also, um, I think, what, from a business standpoint, uh, what can businesses do as well? And Kate, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Mm. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I think, um, you know, we were talking earlier about a tax, you know, the idea of a tax or a ban and, you know, that, that doesn't always go down so well. I'm, I'm sure you People have don't heard like that. the story yeah. of uh, one of the prestigious universities here in Singapore and they banned plastic straws and the students went out and bought boxes of plastic straws and put them in the bin and, oh. in protest. Um, so things like bans and taxes, yeah, can sometimes work and, and sometimes not. 
Um, so an alternative is that businesses do have a real role to play yep. in kind of nudging uh, the consumer behaviour. Mm. So things, for example, I was talking about Starbucks before. They could just have coffee cups that, that you use inside the store instead of throwing them out yeah. after you've used them. Um, or, for example, at the supermarkets, they could ask you, do you want a plastic bag or have you brought your reusable plastic yeah. bag today? Yeah. And that, that nudges. And, and people can still say yes and, or no mm. and they can still take a plastic bag, but it nudges them. And, and yeah. there have actually been studies um, that have shown that actually if you ask that, it can have the same impact as having to pay, a, pay mm. for the plastic bag. Yeah. It, it nudges that behaviour. Um, so I think businesses have a real role to play there because it's not something that the government can regulate. They can't regulate how businesses talk to their customers, right? That's mm. something that has to come from, yeah. from the businesses themselves. Mm. Yeah, and, well, and that sort of fits in with what you were saying as well, Mark, and it, about, you know, building critical mass. And if you get a whole bunch of people bringing reusable bags, then mm. the person who's asking for plastic is yeah. going to feel out of place instead of part of the... Yeah. Can I just add something? I, I, I don't think it's, I don't know the psychology behind it, but I just, I'm involved in a number of conversations where when we say to people, you need to reduce your water usage, people are re usually mm -hmm. defensive. When we say you need to build high density in Western Australia, for example, we have a uh, a plan to basically improve densification because we can't afford people living apart. We have to have more uh, you know, mid to high density living. But the perception, and we have to practice a little bit of empathy because every time that we come up with these solutions of uh, restricting people's use of something, you get a defense uh, response. So as opposed to taking something away from people, how can we turn the conversation to enhancing the outcome? rather than taking away from something. So rewarding, rewarding and, and also making a better living. So for example, if you can demonstrate to people that high density or mid density will provide a better living mm -hmm. than the current, then they will have a conversation with you. If you say to people, we're taking away uh, this thing, because people have legitimate sometimes hygiene questions about things that can be reused uh, and, and things like that. So I think we need to stay away from the restriction and open a conversations for uh, opportunities. Mm -hmm. well, how mm -hmm. can we make it better, not take something away from people? Because the term water restriction uh, people don't like it because people like just to go like, if you restrict me, I'm going to just do it just to annoy you. <laughs> a bit like kids, you know? Well, I so. think that came up too when we were talking before around health, yeah. I think, right? And That's you right. were saying something about, I mean, there are health implications to the consumption of plastic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Especially yeah. since it doesn't go. I think that's something that people didn't really know that much about yeah. until quite recently. So it may be that now the health implications, and I think you've probably seen um, WWF is running an advertising campaign yep. around Singapore at the moment. You eat a credit card a week um, in, in plastics yep. that you ingest. So I think, I think that will help. Oh. Yeah, sure. WHO yeah. just released a report on microplastic in water. So this is not really something that, uh, you know, just seen the report uh, today, in mm -hmm. fact. Huh? Pretty new. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it, it is. 
So that kind of, in some ways, goes back to what you were saying as well. And is that a motivator? If it becomes about taking care of yourself and your family, is that a motivator? Yeah, absolutely. At, 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 at present, if you if you adopt the traditional um, way of framing, reducing, um, you know, the use of plastics, it's 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 a typical kind of public goods type problem. It's a collective action problem. Mm. We all need to, to pull our weight. But the problem is that free riders undermine cooperation. Yep. So there are always individuals who will say, I'm not going to engage in this behavior. I'll leave it to, to somebody mm. else to solve mm -hmm. this mm. problem. Um, and what that means is that if you're the person um, that, if you're a cooperator, if you're engaging in these behaviors, mm. but other people around you aren't, and you can see that, then you, you're meant to feel like a sucker. And mm -hmm. what, mm. what happens, yeah, yeah. You, 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 you stop cooperating. So getting cooperation in public goods type scenarios is, is notoriously very difficult. Mm. So if you can turn it into something about the individual, if you can mm. turn it into a health risk concern... If you can make yeah. it personal. That's right. Yeah. Um, sure. Everybody... Um, mm. uh, well, when people get fear-stalking messages that some pattern of behaviour that they're exhibiting could be mm. causing them harm, they mm. start to pay attention. Mm. Um, and indeed, fear, fear appeals are a kind of classic mm. um, psychological um, persuasive mm. messaging strategy for getting people to uh, avoid... Uh, risky behaviours like mm. smoking, and, and they are effective when mm. they're deployed properly. Mm. So there's definitely something in that. There's mm. definitely, um, I, I think it's right to pursue um, that, that pathway of trying to um, focus on the individual health risks. I don't mm. think we should abandon the whole kind of, you know, collective action. Proactive kind of, yes. yeah. But it, it's, it's something that should run in, in tandem. So I do think that's important. Mm. And honey, just in your dealings with kids, do you find like is there hope? Do you see <laughs> do you see kids becoming aware and conscious and starting to put that kind of pressure on their parents and um I definitely think that there is hope. Definitely. Um I think uh, uh I remember just starting a game um about um half well, a half year ago on um, recycling and it was in a in a, an open area and there were children as young as 18 months to about six years old and we put an article up there of course the some of the children um, were, uh, some of the children are not reading it but they generally uh, came and they were gather and they will talk about it and then they will take out the recycling bin and um, um, you know, re uh, recycle the plastic um, bottles into the correct bin. Awesome. And I think that it, it just took us um, half a day to set it up. Mm. And after that, they, they go back and talk to mom and dad, and mm. they came back with a little project. So yes, definitely, mm. I think that um, as long as we can model the behavior mm. and we can practice it with them, mm. um, there is definitely yeah. hope. There is hope. <laughs> I, can, I can speak from experience. I have two daughters, one is nine and one is 12. They have different approach, but they are very effective. So my <laughs> 12 years old is more a negotiator, a very skilled negotiator, so she can get us to do things. My little one is very dictatorial. So, and she gets what she wants. So on issues to do with plastic, uh, Maya, the youngest, has been very effective because she 
basically bosses everyone around. She does not allow uh, you know, anything to do with plastic pollution. She picks it up from the beach. She, she is very focused. And lots of them like this, kids are actually very aware. So I, I really see hope. So I'm going to, in a moment, we're going to come to you and ask you if you have any questions. Uh, but I, I, and we'll, so we'll wind this down. Um, but I, I did want to ask each of you, um, what, does, what does give you hope? In relation to this uh, this issue, and uh, if you if if you could leave one thought with people who are here tonight, what would that be? So, Anas, maybe we'll start well, with you. the first thing. I was really reflecting earlier on, uh, you know, sometimes we overthink these problems, and sometimes there are solutions that could be, uh, you know, very effective and happen overnight. So, France, you know, France decided that there is no plastic cutlery mm -hmm. overnight. It's gone. So I think there are things that we can do that we can be so effective, uh, you know, uh, overnight. So there's no, like, it doesn't even sit well in France to ask for plastic cutlery anymore because they're gone. They were like... But at the same time, they were not the normal thing as well. So they were introduced over years and, and whatever. So I do believe that they are part of this problem can be fixed like this. So that's the one. You know, like someone told me that in Singapore, can you buy chewing gum? No. That's, another, that's another plastic that Singapore was the first country in the world to actually eliminate. Yay. Yeah. There's Here plastic you go. in it's pl it's, There's plastic in chewing gum. Or in, in yeah. oh, really? Oh, the well, gum well has plastic. Oh, didn't you know? There <laughs> you go. I know about the chewing gum, but I didn't know there was plastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's, oh, it's made out of plastic, yes. <laughs> so, you know, the flavoring and whatever, this is, it's true. So, here you go. So, Singapore is a leader in this area of eliminating plastic already. Well done. Great. Everyone. <laughs> I can tell you how much, what kind of plastic. Just give me a moment. You can go for it. <laughs> so, um, for me, I mean, leading on from what Anas said, what gives me hope is that we are already seeing action. I was yep. just um, in the Philippines for the National Day Long Weekend, diving and going to the beach, and we barely saw any plastic at all in this area mm. that we were in. And, I mean, the Philippines is known. It, it has a, a real issue with plastic. But this area, obviously, there's been a big cleanup and... You know, it, it was it was clean. Like it's it's really achievable, and and we're seeing a lot of movement on it already. And in terms of the last thought, I would just say it doesn't have to be extreme action. You know, you don't we don't have to cut plastic out of our lives forever. We don't even have to completely stop using plastic bags. But there's so many little steps that we can take between what we're doing now and and you know removing plastic. Um, so it's just about those, those small actions, you know, just buying a reusable bag, buying a reusable coffee cup and, and just cutting down. It doesn't have to be about banning or eliminating or, or anything like that. I'm going to go back to my social norming message and, <laughs> and just um, remind people that, you know, I'm, I'm sure we're all pro-environmental in this room, but um, you're not in a minority. You know, when we think about the in injunctive norm, um, you know, you're in good company. Most people in the community want want to solve this problem, mm -hmm. um, and um, that, for me, is one of the most important 
one of the most important factors, that there, there is that you know, common sense of purpose, um, that this is a problem that needs to be resolved. But it's translating that, I mean, one, one, as, I've, as I've mentioned, I think it's really important that people, um, that, that that message is communicated and that people, um, um, people recognize it because um, people do constantly misperceive Mm -hmm. um, social norms, um, and this is one area where that's that's more than likely true. Um, but in order to kind of build up that critical mass, it's important, um, you know, to whatever behaviours you're engaged in to try and tackle this problem, make them visible, um, share that, you know, make that a public signal that other people can see, so that they can see that trend. Um, take your re reusable bags, you know, to the supermarket. Um, maybe occasionally, gently, you know. Um, confront someone who's using plastic <laughs> bags. Um, you know, use your use your social media to communicate the kind of things that you're doing, so that you know um, that that social signal starts mm. to get transmitted and spreads. Um, I do think that um, social pressure is really the mm -hmm. way um, to mm. move with this. And part and parcel with that, I think a little bit. Point out the companies who are doing a really good job. Point out the you know who yeah. who you can patronize who's like doing it well, yeah. That's right, yeah. Um, and there's, there's, there's a role for mass communications in this, and that's typically how social norms are communicated through social norms, marketing, personalized feedback on your energy bill and your water bill, for example. That, those kinds of things can be done in the context of yeah. plastics. But we're, we're also, we can also contribute it, to it through our social media channels as well. Um, so. Um, you know, be a part of. Uh, but I also agree with with what Kate was saying that um, even small steps. Um, you know, don't walk away from here today and say, "Right, I'm going to get plastic out of my life completely. You're gone," because that's not going to happen. Not possible in Singapore. But what you yeah. but what you can do is you can you can make a small but credible commitment, and over time you can build on that commitment. Um, you know, you, you can only eat an elephant in you know small bites. So. <laughs> Okay, so um, two things give me hope. Um, even with the um, reaction in the university about the straws, um, recently everywhere you go in Singapore, you barely you are barely offered straws. So I think that's that's fantastic. Um, the second thing is um, we had our primary school leaving examination oral examination last week. And it was about recycling. It was about not using uh, one-time use plastic. <laughs> it's about not using straws. Oh, so awesome. um, about 30, 35,000 children, children would have learned that and be able to articulate that. <laughs> so yes, that gives me lots of hope. <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm going to open it up now to you if you have some questions. And I am going to say that we're recording this for podcasts. So you have to, even though it's a small room, you have to actually speak into the microphone so that you'll be recorded. So, Joe, I'm bringing you the microphone. <laughs> um, hi, my name is Joe. I run a business that is uh, focused on zero waste. So we have solutions that recycle glass waste mm. into sand 
to be reused in all manner of things like mm. uh, roads, mm. um, construction, for example. Yep. We also have solutions that recycle food waste into yep. compost mm -hmm. uh, to be reused for greening or perhaps um, even agriculture. Yep. But the problem that I faced uh, in Singapore, and I think the panelists didn't quite really deal with this issue, is that when I, when I touch on plastics, it's a systemic problem. Mm. It's not about the consumer. Yeah. It's a systemic problem. Maybe I should just quickly poll the room. How many people actually diligently put their plastics into their blue bins? You recycle, in other words. How many people? Just raise your hands. It's not blue, but... That's, that's a very good number. That's yeah. actually pretty good. That's a very good number. What if I tell you that despite you doing that, it absolutely does nothing at all for the environment? Yeah. Because in Singapore, before you lavish us with too much praise, <laughs> we take the plastic and we burn it. Yeah. You know, we don't actually recycle. Yeah. And even a company like, like uh, in Australia, SKM, for mm -hmm. example, which yeah. recently collapsed under $200 million worth of debt, what they do in terms of recycling is that they package it, put it in 40-foot containers, and ship mm. it to China. Mm. But China has stopped taking plastic waste because yeah. why? Everybody is now ordering things on their phones. So packaging waste has gone up in China, mm. and no one is taking plastic waste anymore. Mm. So you see, let me sort of cut to the chase. As a consumer, I've got no options. Yeah. I walk into the supermarket, I want to buy a refill pack, I, can't f I, I either have to pay a lot more for a refill pack mm. or they are fewer by number compared to the hard plastics that you see on the shelves. Mm. So I can't even make the conscious decision to say, I want to buy a refill pack. Yeah. Or heck, if you can even dispense the detergents from a dispenser, I'm quite happy to yeah. bring my own glass bottles. Yeah. But that's an option that's not available for me. Yeah. And then on the downstream, when I want to recycle, the government burns the plastics, mm. right? So that's it's a right. systemic problem. Right, so in light of the systemic problem, I know all of you are very hopeful about changing the <laughs> consumer mindset and everything. So how can we tackle this yeah. systemic problem yeah. and, and not you know, just focus on the poor yeah. consumer? No, I think, I think you're absolutely right. Sorry, These are sorry. challenges, yes. Sorry, before yeah, I, yeah, I, I yeah, end yeah. off, yeah. can we go after the Unilevers, yeah. the Johnson & Johnsons, the Procter & Gamble's <laughs> of this world, people who always you know, put all these plastics yeah. on the shelves, yeah, yeah. You know, the Coca-Colas, you know? Let's go after these guys, right? It's a systemic problem, right? But it's I not mean, a consumer problem. Thank you. Those, I'm just going to comment quickly on that last point because, I mean, those companies... What do they care about? They care about profit. Where does their profit come from? It comes from consumers. Yeah, consumer so movement. actually the way to get those companies to change their behavior is to, to speak as a consumer, which is to take your money elsewhere where you can and where you can't to talk to them. And just one other really quick point on the recycling aspect. Um, I think it's really important to remember the waste hierarchy, which is the three R's, right? Reduce, reuse, recycle. And we have it in that order because we should be focusing on reducing first. And you're right, the recycling... At the moment, recycling is a bit of an issue because China is no longer taking people's waste and most countries don't have recycling infrastructure. And that's something that can also be improved upon. But the most important thing is to start with reduce. And, and that is something that, as consumers, you, you can do. You know, you can choose not to buy a coffee from Starbucks if it's going to come in a, yep. a disposable cup. 
or you can choose, you know, not to ask for a plastic bag. Yeah. So I think that's, that's... Can I add the other part from the broader... I, I totally agree with you. There are lots of issues. That doesn't mean that the actions that people are taking are the wrong ones. It's that we need the right policies and we need also the right infrastructure and, and, and processing chain uh, for waste because we need to look at waste differently. This is... This is, I think, the issue around plastic, uh, and there is food waste as well, that we can have a talk about it as well. It's the same area. You can produce energy out of these things. But if people broaden the solution to these problems to be inclusive with other opportunities, then you have better solutions. If we are looking at it from a one driver, which is reduce plastic, then that's not gonna, gonna be really uh, fixed. So, you know, you'll be pleased that our Prime Minister in Australia just decided with the, with the states that there will be no export of, of plastic or paper, any, anything that's recyclable overseas, which means that there is a pressure on the Australian system uh, uh, Australian structure to come up with the right solution. So I think these are all going to be really good for business. This is this well, is my take on it. That would be the thing, wouldn't it? To be come up with or to come up with business solutions and profitable solutions, as you said before. Yeah. Uh, sorry, um, my name is uh, Martin Grunert. I'm uh, with the N Academy. I, I guess uh, the other question, I guess leading on from that, because you all expressed that you're so hopeful about this, and not to be everyone being doom and gloom and everything, but I think uh, isn't also part of the issue that a lot of the corporations and the companies are these wolves in sheep's clothing, right? They will sell you things that they tell you are environmentally friendly or they've purchased their carbon credits or whatever else they, they're, they're wanting to offset their carbon footprint with or their plastic footprint with. And ultimately, they're still ramming down your throat things which you as a consumer don't even necessarily know is problematic. There's a, there's a company at the moment that's quite popular for Ocean who do the uh, recycled plastic, ocean reclaimed plastic bracelets that they sell to consumers and there's the allegations that they perhaps are making them from scratch rather than actually going off and, and fetching that much plastic out of the ocean in the first place. And you've got people who are spending hundreds of millions and, and, and potentially, since you guys said billions in, in the long term on this kind of thing, which is not even actually a solution. You're unwittingly contributing to the problem in the first place. And so, so my question is really, how do, you, how do you control the government regulation in such a way that instead of, you know, when you take a small consumer and you put a, a rule or regulation on them and they end up throwing straws in the garbage bin, it's a very minor form of rebellion. But if you're a multi-billion dollar corporation and you simply fudge the books and you change everything to escape from that, which happens all the time, how, how can you possibly control that? I, I, I would support what you said earlier, but uh, I think the point, from my point of view, is the point that you're, 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 you're point, you rightly pointed is about traceability. So these companies, if the consumer would want to know where everything comes from, and if we have the right policies for it, then those companies will not lie to you. It's all about... Uh, traceability. That's the next thing. The next thing is that people want to know where their clothes are coming from. Who made them? Was it ethically sourced? Uh, the food that you put in your body, you would want to know where it's from, right? So these are all movements that are going to be a big part of the solution. 
Yeah, and the other thing that I would say is, um, you know, when you're talking about companies that, that have a vested interest in this, I mean, the, the clean ocean, no, what, what were they called? Four, four ocean, yeah. four ocean people, yeah. sure. But, I mean, think about the petrochemical companies yeah. who are now facing challenges with climate change uh, and the other half of the business is in plastics. So obviously there is a big vested interest there that plastic production continues and how do you address that? I mean, it's a huge, complicated issue. One thing I would say is that that's somewhere where regulation can potentially play a role because you have, you know, for example, we should be using more recycled plastics, right, rather than the virgin um, plastics. And so that's where you can have um, kind of market incentives, subsidies, that kind of thing that makes it viable um, economically viable for these companies to instead use recycled plastics, but mm. sometimes it's, a, it's a carrot and sometimes it's a stick, isn't yeah. it? We and, are um, and just for research to come up with new kinds of materials, yeah. and uh, yeah. I think that's where the the future is is about what are because lots of these things we didn't know that they were harmful. So I, I, I'm just going to give you a quick example. Uh, you know when we when we came up with uh, leaded petrol, I mean, most of you are young, you wouldn't remember this. <laughs> but it was a breakthrough. It was the biggest thing that ever, because someone decided that they add a little bit of lead to the, the petrol, and then the engine runs better, right? That, that transformed the world. Suddenly we discovered that there was lead is everywhere. Really, literally everywhere. And then you can see, you can go to any, you can Google it now, and you can see the curve. When we decided to introduce unleaded petrol, because the mechanics have changed, and you can see the peak of the lead, and you can see the decline as well. Like, literally, this is something that is basically traceable in the core, the ice cores that researchers were. You can still today go to places where they have ice and drill on ice and find the deposits of the lead for when it was first introduced. But when we realized it was a problem, we took it out. That's why you have unleaded petrol. Mm -hmm. It's still called unleaded petrol. Mm -hmm. So one day there will be unplastic something. <laughs> well, <laughs> it, is, it is a little bit about building momentum, isn't it? And, yeah. and just making it unacceptable over time. Absolutely. A complex problem with a complex set of solutions, yeah. I think. So all of our panel will be out in the reception, so you can ask more questions of them. Um, but please join me in thanking them for a really interesting conversation. And we'll be sending you a follow-up um, a follow-up communication after this with some links to some interesting things related to the issue and things that you can do. And um, if you have examples of, we I really invite you to join in this conversation. If you have examples of, say, companies who are doing a really good job or companies who are doing a bad job and you want to share them via social media or however, um, I think, you know, UWA alumni, there are 130,000 alumni. We can make a difference as far as this goes, by example and through social media and uh, any number of ways. So I invite you to join with the university in that. And um, again, it's, it's going to take all of us. Same way it takes a village to raise a child, <laughs> probably takes all of us. If you have some great innovative ideas for new businesses as well, we have innovation incubators, IQX, and uh, 
you know, innovation academies and whatever. So this is a trend, a new trend where, you know, if you have a, an idea, just, you know, let yeah. us know. Or come take up Tony's scholarship and mm. study and come up with a scientific yep. solution that's going to change the world. Yeah.